I have been thinking this week about why it is that people like Christmas so much. Why do they like uh, Christmas time so much? Why do they want it to last as long as possible, stretch it all the way to October and make it extend back into uh, January? Why, why do people like Christmas so much? And I, I have been thinking about that and thinking, I think that it is because there is something pure and joyous and innocent about Christmas that we have this virgin who gave birth to an innocent child, right? And now we celebrate that with light in the darkness. We celebrate it with uh, joy and uh, the Christmas spirit of sweet treats and uh, family unity and togetherness. And we proclaim peace to one another and we uh, pretend like this could happen all the time, right? Like, like Christmas time is that time of year that we pretend that there just isn't sin and brokenness in the world, but that there is this hope and joy that shines out of the darkness and we, we participate with one another and pretend that we have this really great family union, unity and uh, we just like to do that together. And I've been thinking about that and thinking about now as we anticipate the arrival of Christmas, as we are in this Advent season and celebrating Christ's birth, we are going to this morning consider a very different story about a, a different young woman and the birth of a different child. But this, in this story, if this story didn't take place, there would be no Jesus, right? This story had to take place. And in this story, it reminds us why the world needed a Messiah to come. And in this story, it reminds us why we needed a Messiah to come. And so we're going to consider the story of David. You remember David, right? That, the great king? The great King David, the one who as a youth slew Goliath, the one who wrote those beautiful psalms, the one who uh, was anointed to be king because Saul was so self-centered and David was a man after God's own heart, a man who, who refused to usurp the, the throne. Even though he had been anointed king already, he refused to uh, put his hand against Saul and usurp the throne, right? Or take it by force. This great king, the one who conquered and won so many battles and set up the kingdom in Jerusalem and ruled with justice there and who desired so much to build a temple for the Lord there in Jerusalem. That King David. Well, we're going to talk about the story of how King David uh, his descendants, right? Because God had promised him, David, I am going to make your seed, your offspring, rule on the throne forever. And so we're going to see how David's lineage, his blessed lineage, takes one step closer to Jesus. And this is the story in 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of that year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah 
but David remained at Jerusalem. What is he doing in Jerusalem? David, the great conquering king, the one who has uh, conquered most of the land of Israel and is ruling there, he's the warrior king, right? He's the one that defeats the enemies and leads the people out into battle. And at the time of year when kings were going out to battle, David's like, you know, I did a lot of that as a young man. I did a lot of that as a, a, a growing mature man, and I am going to just stay at home. And so he sent Joab, the commander of the army, and he sent all of Israel out to do the battling. And he stayed home. And it happened, verse 2. Late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from, from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. Here's David. Wakes up in the morning, nothing to do. Everybody else is out at battle. So he slept in, gets up from his couch, goes walking on the roof of the king's palace, high up on the top of the hill, high up on the top of his roof, and he looks down and he sees a beautiful woman who is bathing. And he says, huh, who's that? And then he goes and he starts asking, hey, uh, there's a woman who lives right about in this house over here. Anybody know who that is? And somebody goes, oh, yeah, isn't that uh, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Uriah the Hittite. Did pretty well for himself. Why don't you send her to me? Okay. Go knock on the door. Bathsheba, uh, the king would like to see you. And the king, this righteous king, the, the king who is a man after God's own heart, that king says, come here, Bathsheba. And he takes her and he treats her as if she was his wife. And then he sends her away again. Now, the contrast between the sin of David and the righteousness of Bathsheba, right? Bathsheba had been, it says, now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. There was for every woman 
uh, a menstrual cycle that would happen, and during that time, you would be impure, and then for the next seven days, ceremonially speaking, you would be impure, and then you would have to cleanse yourself so that you would be ritually pure again. And she was just going through this process. She loved the Lord, she was following the Lord, and she was just making herself clean again when she was defiled. And if you start to do some math and you say, okay, if she started a menstrual cycle and there were seven days and then you had another seven days and then you had, now she was ritually cleansed, you start to go, if I know how these things work, she's pretty fertile right then. So in verse 5, we are not very surprised when it says, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now, David has not been the epitome of righteousness that we would like to see from him. And now, his sin is being made more known, right? I mean, already there was probably some wondering about what was going on. David had been on his roof, came home, uh, came to his servants and was going, hey, I just wonder what's going on with that woman that lives a few doors down. And then when they said, oh yeah, this is who that is, that's Bathsheba, he said, okay, would you send her to me? We're just gonna, I'm just gonna, would like to meet with her privately for a little bit. Well, you're the king. Yeah, okay, she's gonna go. And a short time later, word comes to David and he's going, uh-oh. People are going to know because Uriah's not here. I have a solution. Verse 6, so David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. It's interesting how much power David has, right? He just sends everybody off, all of Israel and Joab. He sends them off to war while he stays home. He sees a woman, he sends for her, and she is sent to him. And now he sends for her husband so that he might also be sent to David. And Uriah comes. And David makes some pretenses in talking with Uriah and says, Oh, yo, you know, Uriah, how are things going up there at the front of the war, the place where I am not? Hey, Uriah, how's Joab doing? I'm just curious how things are going up there. And in, if you're reading, I'm not going to go through verse by verse, but if you're reading verse by verse, you will notice that we don't know. Because it is not important 
what Uriah's report was. David could have found that out any number of ways. I'm sure he already knew. He just asked Joab to send Uriah because he needed Uriah here. That's the point. I sent for Uriah. Uriah came. I made some small talk with Uriah, and I said, Uriah, why don't you go home? Why don't you go wash your feet? You've been gone on a long journey. You've been in the midst of a hard battle. Why don't you go home and refresh yourself? And Uriah did not go home. Uriah slept at the king's gate with the king's servants because he was a faithful servant himself. And so the other servants come and they tell David, hey, you know, David, um, I, I don't really know what's going on here, but I just thought you might be interested to know that Uriah did not actually go home last night. David's going, what? Hey, uh, Uriah, haven't you come from a long journey? Why didn't you go down to your house? I mean, it just seems like if I had been gone on a long journey, I'd want to go to my house. Uriah, I've seen your wife, and I think you'd probably want to go visit her. But in verse 11, Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And the contrast between the sin of David and the, the righteousness of Uriah is stark. Because Uriah is going, David... I mean, everybody else is out in tents. Everybody else is out in battle. That's what I should be doing. How could I possibly just take my rest and sleep with my wife when I should be out doing that? And David is going, I would. The contrast here is stark. And so David has another idea, a better idea. He goes, okay, one more day. I think just hang out one more day. You need to know more reports because I don't have any updates from yesterday. I haven't been out there to know what's going on. No, it's okay. Just hang out here one more day, and then you can leave tomorrow. And David takes Uriah, and he gets him drunk. And then tries to send him home. You know, Uriah, your righteousness is a little too high here. Let's loosen you up a bit. I need you to do this thing. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. And in the morning, David, this is verse 14 now. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And in the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the 
forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And so he wrote the note and he sealed the note and he said, Uriah, I have a letter for you to bring to Joab. And he gave it to Uriah. And I read these stories, and I just want to cry. Every time I read this story, I just want to cry because I just can't handle this level of unrighteousness. This is supposed to be the great king. And instead, he's the nearly great king. And then we get to a story like this, and I go, I don't know that we can call him nearly great. I don't even know that he qualifies as mediocre at this point. The disgusting king, perhaps? And so Uriah goes back. He hands over his own death sentence to Joab. Joab puts him in the front of the line. The fighting gets really difficult. He puts him right up against the wall where they're shooting arrows and throwing things down. He's like, Uriah, you got you to take that wall, man. And Uriah went, okay, this doesn't seem like a very good idea to me, but everybody with me, right, guys? Right, guys? Nope, just you, Uriah. What'd I do wrong, guys? You had a beautiful wife, man. Nobody likes a guy with a beautiful wife. And Uriah dies, and Joab sends word back to David. Just want to let you know, there was a very fierce battle. Things got pretty heated. We got a little too close to the wall. And some of the people died. And what I want you to tell David, when you, he tells the messenger, what I want you to tell David, when you go and you tell David what I want you to say, because he's probably going to get mad and go, how come you were fighting right there? Haven't you heard all the stories about how they throw stuff down off the walls and then people die? Why were you so close? As he starts to get mad, then you just tell him, and also, just so you know, Uriah the Hittite is dead. So the, ma the messenger that brings that message to David doesn't bother to let David get riled up. He anticipates what Joab anticipated, and he goes, and so we got right up to the wall, and then they shot the arrows, and just so you know, Uriah the Hittite is dead. And this sin is now being a cover-up that multiple people are in, invested in and participating in, and David is sort of weaving this all together so that it all works out in the end. And so he says, don't, you go back and you tell Joab, don't worry about it. Sometimes these things happen. People die in war Mistakes are made. It happens. Don't worry about it. And then in verse 26 of 2 Samuel 11, 
When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. Ta-da! He did it! You know, it was touch and go there for a little bit. He had had this whole sin thing that happened there, and then the people were going to find out because the woman got pregnant. But then he did this clever thing where he just killed her husband and brought her into his house, and now she conceived and bore, ha-ha! And nobody will know about this awful thing that he did. Except that the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And at this point, I just want to stop. Because if you're anything like me, there are things that you have done in your life that you then tried really hard to cover up because you knew how stupid and awful it was. And you thought to yourself, I really need this to not be found out. I really don't want anybody to ever know about this. And you tried to cover it up and hide it, maybe with some success. But even if you covered it up, so that nobody knew, or only one or two people knew. It didn't fix the problem. Because the thing displeases the Lord. Which is why when we find ourselves in that place where we have done something that we know is not right and then we try to hide it and cover it up so that no one will know, we don't feel satisfied in that moment. You don't find yourself sitting in shalom. You don't find yourself sitting in peace in that place going, I have this life full of sin but nobody knows about it. This feels great. Instead, we find ourselves in a place of paranoia where we just hope that nobody finds out. Because we've covered it up and then we've hidden ourselves in the darkness. And we hope that nobody turns on the light. Because if they were to turn on the light, they would see what we have done. And so we just hide all by ourselves so that nobody finds out. Because if we don't tell, talk with people, they can't know. So we sit alone in the dark, hoping that no one will find out, paranoid that they will. And all that time, the Lord is looking and going, what have you done? What have you done? This is not how I created you to be. This is not how I created relationships to be. This is not how I created kings to be. This is not how I created my people to be. 
what have you done? And so in chapter 12, the Lord sends the prophet Nathan to David. Because that thing that David hoped that no one would find out is known. It's known by a few in the castle, the, the um, servant quarters and that sort of thing. But it's known by the Lord, and so he sends his messenger, his prophet Nathan, to go speak some truth to David. And Nathan tells him a story, and you may be familiar with this story. I'm going to just tell you the really shortcut version. But Nathan goes to David and he says, David, there was somebody who had many sheep, was very wealthy and very rich, and he saw that his neighbor had only one. But he really liked that sheep, and there was a need for him to uh, provide sheep when guests were coming over. And so he took his neighbor's sheep, this sheep that his neighbor loved so much, it was like one of a member of the family. He let it sit, it would cuddle with his children, and it would sit on his lap, and he would love on that sheep. And this rich man took that sheep and he killed it so that he could have a party. And David went, what? You remember David, the righteous, just king who ruled in justice? He said, that is not okay. Whoever that was that did that thing, he deserves to die. And Nathan said, verse 7, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave, you to your, I gave you your master's house, and I gave you your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you as much more. David, do you remember who you are? Do you remember that you were a poor little shepherd boy? Do you remember the way that I have cared for you, provided for you, blessed you, given you all that your heart might desire, and yet you have done this thing? Verse 9, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife. And you've killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For what you did secretly, I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the sun." And David's greatest fear is now being realized. People might know. My deepest, darkest sin that I didn't want anybody to know. I killed the man so that no one would know. But the Lord knows. 
and it displeased the Lord. And he says, and now everybody's going to know. Because what you did in secret, I'm going to bring the consequences in the full light of all of Israel and Judah and under the sun. You wanted to hide by yourself in the darkness, but we're going to expose this thing out in the day. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. I hope that for us, it doesn't require this level of confrontation, this level of exposure before we confess our sin. Before we find the healing and the forgiveness that comes from God, I hope that it doesn't come to this. But I also hope that if you refuse to acknowledge and confess your sin to the Lord, that He confronts you like this. Right in your face. Look, you wanted to hide it? It's going to be everywhere. Front page headline. All the world is going to know. Why do I want that for you? Is it because I hate you so much? Is it because I want your reputation ruined? No. It's because I want for you what happened here for David. That you might repent in righteousness. Psalm 51 is David's response to this situation because David was convicted of his sin and has carried this thing much too far, but now he repents. And in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 12, verse 13, he said to Nathan, I sinned against the Lord. And this is how he puts it in Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. There may be some of you who are feeling that way right now, that your sin, that sin that you wish no one would know about is right here, right in your face all the time. You're living in that darkness. You're living in that place where you're feeling very alone because nobody knows what you know. Maybe you've got some of them fooled and they think that you are really righteous when in fact you're hiding this thing. But now David confesses it to the Lord and he says, Lord, I'm confessing it to you. I'm confessing it to you. I have sinned. Please wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Down in verse 10, it says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. He had seen what happened to Saul. He had seen the selfishness and pride that had taken a hold in Saul and how the Lord had moved the Holy Spirit from him to David. He had taken away his Holy Spirit from Saul and put it on David instead. And David is going, oh no! Oh no, Lord! Please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Please cleanse me. Please fill me with the joy that I had before when I was following after you, when my heart was after your heart when I had not committed this awful sin, restore to me that kind of joy and make me clean. And here's what I know in having talked with many different people about sin, that there are many people who feel like I could never be clean. Oh, Travis, you don't know what I have done. There is no way I could ever be forgiven. There is no way I could ever be righteous. There is no way I could ever have the joy of being clean. And we look at David. And we see a king who used his power to take another man's wife for himself and commit adultery. And then, as a a way of trying to cover that up, killed the man. And he is asking the Lord that he might be cleansed. That he might be restored. And that the presence of God would not leave him. And I want to tell you that it did. The presence of of God remained with him. Now, there are consequences to the sin. Nathan went out of David's house and went back down to his own house, and the Lord came and afflicted the child of Uriah's wife. And the child became very sick. And David fasted and prayed for that child, but the consequences of David's sin were put on that child. The consequences of David's sin were the death of that child. But the life of David was set free. And when the child was not restored but had died, David got up and he washed his face and he began to eat again and he praised the Lord for his faithfulness. So that his servants looked around and went, I think there's something wrong with David. I think there's something wrong with David because here this man was fasting and weeping and praying while the child was sick, and then the child died, and now he's going on. And David said, yeah, I was hoping that the Lord would relent on the consequences on that child, but now that he hasn't, I yet will praise the Lord, for he is good. 
And then in verse 24, David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. This name that means loved of the Lord. And Solomon would become a great king. And Solomon would be the next step in the lineage from the promises of the covenant from God to David that would result in the birth of the Messiah. And Solomon was that next step. And I look at this story and go, not how I would have done it. Like if I was writing this as a movie about the lineage of Jesus, the perfect child, the, the one who was born in sinlessness to a virgin, that innocent child, if I was going to write his story and go back through his history to his great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, I wouldn't include this story. This isn't how I would do it. Because this isn't the way that it's supposed to be. And yet, God takes the things that are broken by sin and redeems them. And you may have sin in your life that you go, this is not redeemable. And you may be covering it up so that no one will know. Because you are convinced in your mind that if anyone were to know, everything would fall apart and be broken. And if you can just keep it in tight enough so that no one will know, the only brokenness that will exist is within yourself. And I want you to know, you just can't hide it. You just can't keep it in so that no one will know because the thing has, has displeased the Lord. But if you expose it, if you uh, confess it, it can be redeemed. That's not to say there won't be any consequences, but I don't even know how many times I have talked with people who don't want to admit that the sin happened because they are afraid of the consequences of the sin. And then when they have confessed it, to see the grace of the Lord be given to them in a way they didn't even know was possible. To have the love of the Lord be expressed to them, to have them feel the love of the Lord in a way that they didn't even know was possible. They said, I could not imagine this kind of love. I could not imagine this kind of grace. I could not imagine this kind of redemption. 
I was so afraid of the consequences of my sin, I could not imagine that along with those consequences, I could receive this kind of freedom and joy and hope in my life. I had no idea it was possible. And it is possible. It is possible. This story reminds us that though David was a great king whose heart was after God's own heart, he was not the perfect king. God's people needed a Messiah to come, and it is representative for us that like David, we, because of our sin, need to have the Messiah come. And it is a reminder that those who have experiences like Bathsheba can have redemption too. Because we look at the, what happened to Bathsheba, right? That she was brought into the king. That she was defiled. That she was forcibly widowed. And then brought back into the king's house. And I know that there are people here who have, you have had things that have happened to you and you go, I feel so unclean. Not because of things that I have done, but because of things that have been done to me. Could this ever be redeemed? And we look at what happened with Bathsheba. That now, when you go back through the lineage of Jesus, you say that his great, 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 I don't know how many, grandmother was Bathsheba. What an honor to be in the lineage of the Christ. This is not the way that I would want to be honored, that I would want to get into a position of honor. And yet, God takes that which is broken. And that thing that David so much wanted to hide that no one would find out about is like top two of things we know about David, right? If you were to ask somebody, what do you know about David? He killed Goliath. He slept with Bathsheba. Those are probably top two right there. I don't know which one is number one and which one is number two, but they are both right up there. And here it is, this story. That's one more step in the coming of the Christ child. And it is my prayer for you this morning that those of you who have sin that is yet unconfessed, that you would be able to confess that and find the freedom and joy that comes with, the, with repentance and forgiveness of God. And for those of you who have been wronged and violated, I pray that God would redeem that for you. That he would restore you and cleanse you and fill you with the purity that comes from His Spirit. 
Because years later, one of his descendants would come. His, this, his name would be Jesus, our God who is with us. Who would be born into purity and who would live a pure and sinless life, but who would take our sin upon him. He would take our sin upon himself and die in our place so that we might receive his righteousness. This is the weirdest Advent message I have ever preached. Whenever somebody says, what are you going to do for Advent? You usually think, well, I'm going to preach on peace and love and joy and hope. That sounds about right. Well, I'm going to tell the story from the book of Luke. That sounds about right. I'm going to do something crazy and I'm going to use the book of John. Wow, that is interesting. I have never one time heard somebody say, I'm going to use the story of David and Bathsheba. But I think that it does highlight for us how much we need a Messiah to come and how much we are expecting in his birth. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray for those who are here today. Those who have sin that is hiding in the darkness, Lord, I pray that you would expose it, that they would confess it and repent of it, and Father, that you would forgive them and make them clean. Lord, for those who have... um, suffered the consequences of sin against them. Lord, I pray that you would restore their honor. I pray that you would fill them with your righteousness and cleanse them. And Father, I pray that you would give them a hope that they could share with others. And as we anticipate celebrating the birth of Jesus in a couple of weeks, Lord, we are so grateful that he has already come. That for us, we are not waiting with hope against hope of a future thing that is yet to come, but we are looking back with gratitude for something that has already happened. And Lord, we thank you that as he uh, began the work of restoring the world, that one day he will come and he will judge the heavens and the earth, and make all things right and new. And we praise you for this expectation in his name. Amen.